0: Hey, what's up everybody? This is Jeremy. I'm flying solo today, doing a bit of a uh, response video uh, about 20 years after the initial event. I'm just now looking at this. Dated February 16th, 2003. Interesting. Uh, I am reacting, responding to a uh, section from a message given by Alistair Begg. February 16th, 2003. And he, uh, let's see, how can I word this? Um, He goes after dispensationalism uh, unfairly and, I'll just leave it at that. He goes after dispensationalism unfairly. And you'll see what I mean here in a moment. I want to give a couple disclaimers before I get into this. First disclaimer being, I really love listening to Alistair Begg. I have routinely said that he is one of my favorite preachers, or my favorite preacher, even. He uh, is a great orator, a very, very exemplary preacher, and I think probably an exemplary man. Everything I know about him, as far as how he conducts ministry, is exemplary. I, I love him and certainly, absolutely, totally count him as a brother in Christ And I think a lot of them, all right? So there's number one. Uh, And I should mention, I guess, in addition to that, on point number one, I didn't find this clip because I was out like digging up whoever has dispensationalism and then I would just respond to it. I found this clip because I subscribe to the Truth For Life RSS podcast feed and they played this old sermon and I was listening to it. So that's how that happened. All right. Uh, another thing is that I don't disagree with everything that he says here, and I'll clarify that later, so I don't want you to hear the clip and think, oh, well, some of what he said was good. What's, what's Jeremy thinking about that? I'll clarify that as time goes on. All right, I don't, I don't disagree with everything that's said, so keep that in mind, because what I want to do is just play the clip all the way through, and then I want to uh, go back and listen again but I want to, uh, pause along the way and provide my own commentary. So that's the plan here. And, uh, again, I think you'll see along the way, the specific things I want to re- reply to here. Uh, it's not everything, but dirt definitely a good amount of what he goes on to say. All right. So if I do this and this, I will begin playing the clip. It's, a uh, going to be looks like three and a half to four minutes that we'll listen to and then I'll go back and play it again
1: and since everything will be destroyed verse 11 since everything will be destroyed he doesn't say you better figure out the time frame on this he says you better figure out the kind of person you ought to be This, I think, for me, in terms of eschatology, is the great kicker. In other words, the issue of the last things, that the compelling issue in any consideration of what happens at the end of the world when God wraps things up, when you go to the Scriptures themselves, they are always urging, not to some kind of speculative framework or the creation of charts and diagrams, but they are urging us to a certain kind of life. What kind of people ought you to be? Well, he says, let me tell you. You ought to be the kind of people who are living holy and godly lives, and you're indicating the fact that you have a forward look. You're looking forward to the day of God. Interesting phrase, isn't it? To the day of God. He doesn't say you're looking forward to the rapture. He says you're looking forward to the day of God. What is the day of God? I think it's the day when God will come, when Christ will come, and wrap the whole business up. We will move from this age to the age that is to come. And in one great instantaneous moment, God will settle all the accounts, deal with all the issues. No second chances. No place else to go. Since this is the case, he says, when an individual understands this about the destruction of the cosmos, then surely it will create compassion in our hearts for those who do not believe, And if we're genuinely interested in moving towards the day of God, then our friends and our loved ones will know that we are, not by our ability to articulate a view of the end times, but by our lifestyle, by our holiness, by our godliness, by our zeal for the things of Jesus. It's such a challenge, isn't it? It's far easier to say, I'm very interested in the return of Jesus Christ, and let me tell you how I've got it all figured out here in in page number 49. You see, this will happen and that will happen. You run twice around the building, you'll go over there, you'll take the number you first thought of, you'll multiply it by six, and before you know where you are, you're underneath the throne in Jerusalem. When you get there, you will discover there are 144,000 people living under a building. You will come out of it, and so it goes on. And people are saying, What in the world is that about? Exactly what is it about? It's largely an American invention. Sorry, but true. Exported from England, picked up in the States, and as with every other good invention, parlayed into the most powerful influence that the world has ever seen. I got news for you. The quantifier, as Augustine said, regarding those who love the coming of the Lord is not those who affirm that it is very close— nor is it amongst those who determine that it is far in the distance, but it is to be found in those who, whether it be near or far, await it with all their hearts. And how will you know that you're awaiting it with all your heart? It will stir you concerning the loss of your loved ones and your friends who do not know Christ, and it will say to you, Come on now, Jesus is coming. He doesn't want to find you in this filthy predicament.
0: All right, well, um, this is a sermon on 2 Peter 3. I forgot to mention that at the beginning, Uh, though that's not incredibly important to what I'm going to be responding to here. But just in case you were curious when he mentions verse such and such, it's 2 Peter 3 talking about the day of God. All right, well, uh, there it was in its fullness, the clip that is. And now I want to uh, go back and let it play for a bit, pause and offer, <laughs> offer my commentary. So, um, <laughs> all right, I need to mute my microphone and then I need to let it play because it's playing through my, uh, my speakers in here and I don't want the feedback to loop through. But uh, let's kick this off again, and, and I'll pause here in a moment.
1: And since everything will be destroyed, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed, he doesn't say, you better figure out the time frame on this. He says, you better figure out the kind of person you ought to be. This, I think, for me, in terms of eschatology, is the great kicker. In other words, the issue of the last things. That the compelling issue in any consideration of what happens at the end of the world when God wraps things up, when you go to the Scriptures themselves, they are always urging, not to some kind of speculative framework or the creation of charts and diagrams, but they are urging us to a certain kind of life. What kind of people ought you to be? Well, he says, let me tell you. You ought to be the kind of people who are living holy and godly lives and you're indicating the fact that you have a forward look. You're looking forward to the day of God.
0: Okay, so um, he says that basically, if I could sum up in my own words here what, what he's getting across, eschatology should be all about personal holiness to the exclusion... Of charts. That's what I understood there. He says it it should be personal holiness, not speculation or speculative thinking, or the creation of charts and diagrams. When it comes to eschatology, he says, as the Bible presents it, we need to be about holy, forward-thinking, living, uh, not Charts. So, my first question in response to that is why? (laughs) Why not both? Um, Why are we being mutually exclusive here? Now, I agree that there's a lot of speculative thinking that leads people into some bad spots and that needs to be avoided. And again, I'll talk more about that later. That's one of the points I agree with him on through this. It's like, yeah, you get all caught up in speculation and that's no bueno. You know, you just start thinking about newspaper exegesis, basically. You're looking at what's going on in the world and you try to cram it into the Bible and how Donald Trump is the fulfillment of this or Joe Biden is the fulfillment of that and yada, yada, yada. Okay, I totally on the same page. So much of that is incredibly unhelpful and just stupid. However, biblical charts and diagrams exist, right? I mean, let's just, let's be frank. Truthful, honest here, biblical charts and diagrams exist, and they're extremely helpful. Uh, Good ones are, of course. They they can be extremely helpful. They help us understand the Word of God. And correct me if I'm wrong, you can drop a comment, but the more we understand the Word of God, the better off we are when it comes to personal holiness, right? Right? So if we have the ability to make charts, diagrams, tables, whatever it may be, that help us better understand the Word of God, you think that's going to help us in our personal holiness? Yep. Yes, it will. So um, this whole dichotomy that he has set up, I, I think it's just the beginning of many overstatements that we have in this section of the sermon. So... There are, there are some of my first thoughts, but uh, let me mute my mic again and we'll continue to play.
1: Interesting phrase, isn't it? To the day of God. He doesn't say you're looking forward to the rapture. He says you're looking forward to the day of God. What is the day of God? I think it's the day when God will come, when Christ will come. And...
0: All right. Um... I know he's like in the middle of a thought and that's an unflattering place for me to pause that for him, but he's all right. Uh, why can't we look forward to both the rapture and what follows? This is another one of those like false dichotomies. Like why can't we have personal holiness and charts and diagrams? <laughs> why can't we have a hope in the rapture and a hope in the day of God in the eternal state? What What's the... What's the motivation for having either or here instead of both and? Uh, consider the perhaps most prominent passage on the rapture. Uh, it is the most prominent passage on the rapture in all of the Bible. First Thessalonians four uh, verses, roughly what thirteen to eighteen. In First Thessalonians four eighteen, the end of that, Paul says that we should comfort one another with these words. What words? The words that those who have died in Christ, they're not cast away, but there's coming a time when Jesus is going to return in the sense that he will descend to the clouds. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. They will be caught up together with him in the clouds and those who are alive and remain until this time will be taken up. It's a—it's the catching up. Now you can call that the rapture. You can call that whatever you want to call it. But I mean, quite clearly, Paul is giving us some detail about the end times here, that there will be a great catching up of believers in Christ gathered together with their Savior in the clouds. And we are to comfort one another with those words. And Paul tells us that he gives us this detail so that we will not be uninformed and so that we will have hope. We're not like those who have no hope. We have hope by being informed, and this is what happened, and he gives us details. So even though Peter is talking about this other stuff, the other events that are gonna take place, that's not to the exclusion of First Thessalonians 4.18 or John 14, where Jesus says, "'I will come and I will gather you to myself, "'I'll receive you to myself, "'and I'll take you to my Father's house.'" That's another rapture passage. Uh, catching up. He's, he's going to receive us to himself to take us not to earth, but to his father's house where there are many dwelling places that he's prepared for his people. So um, to have vague ponderings about the end times or very general sweeping statements about the end times actually isn't like virtuous over and against the details that we have in the whole of scripture. Our goal needs to be to understand God's word. Okay. That's the goal. All right, back to the sermon
1: and wrap the whole business up. We will move from this age to the age that is to come. And in one great instantaneous moment, God will settle all the accounts, deal with all the issues, no second chances, no place else to go, Since this is the case, he says, when an individual understands this about the destruction of the cosmos, then surely it will create compassion in our hearts for those who do not believe. And if we're genuinely interested in moving towards the day of God, then our friends and our loved ones will know that we are, not by our ability to articulate a view of the end times, but by our lifestyle, by our holiness, by our godliness, by our zeal— for the things of Jesus. It's such a challenge, isn't
0: it? Okay. Well, um, out of one side of his mouth here 20 years ago, Alistair Begg is saying that we shouldn't worry about articulating a view of the end times based on the details that we perceive in the Word of God. And out of the other side of his mouth, he's saying that the end will happen upon us in one instantaneous moment, that's the language he used, and Jesus is going to wrap everything up. Well, isn't he articulating a view of the end times based on the details that he's perceived in God's word whenever he says that Jesus is going to come back and in one instantaneous moment, everything will be wrapped up? So he's like saying, don't get all caught up in the details you perceive in God's word. Listen to the details that I perceive in God's word. Uh, why is his overly simplistic view, and it is overly simplistic, why is it better than a view that examines the details? I think that's a legitimate question. Why is like the default position here of the preacher and what he's putting forward that if you keep it extremely simple and reductionistic, that is virtuous. If you get caught up in the details, well, now you're just going to live a lifestyle that's a train wreck. That That's the implication here. If you have the simplistic view that says, nah, Jesus is coming back, and boop, in an instant, it's all going to be over. Then you're going to live a life of compassion, and you'll be zealous for Jesus. But if you get all caught up in the details, then at that point, you're just going to you know, be Mr. Tinfoil Hat Man, and you're going to run around, and bear God's name in vain because you're not living the lifestyle he's called you to. That's essentially what is being said. Now, am I being reductionistic or overly simplistic in the way that I'm explaining his view? Maybe, uh, but I genuinely don't think I am. I think that's the way he's presenting this here. And uh, of course he kind of goes farther here in just a second and uh, expresses that view even more. He, in the clip that we just listened to, he's putting our zeal for understanding prophecy against the zeal for evangelism, holiness, and the things of Jesus. He used the phrase, the things of Jesus. If you have a zeal for understanding prophecy, that is like mutually exclusive with the zeal for the things of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, I, I certainly agree. Like I said, I certainly agree that there are those who live in the speculative, outside of God's word, who are hooked on Fox News and um, the Times of Israel type websites that lead them into places that are extremely unhealthy. So if we want to talk about that, we totally can. But to equate that with examining the details that we perceive in God's word about what He's doing in the world and what is coming that He's given to us for us to examine, Revelation one three, blessed are those who read this book. So it's a blessing that we have these details of what's going to take place. To to like equate those two things is, um, boy, uh, just uncharitable. I, I'll just settle on that word. It's just very un, uncharitable. I disagree with his wholesale condemnation of detailed eschatology. Just to broad brush, say, if you have a detailed eschatology, that's bad. That's just wrong. That's not that's just not appropriate for someone to say. Now, if you go beyond what God has given us, if you exceed what is written, 1 Corinthians 4, now I'm with you. But if someone is making charts and diagrams based on God's word and laying out what God has given us in detail. I am not going to fire shots at that person. Now we may debate the interpretation, but how amazing is it that we're looking at God's word together and looking at the details to just cancel out this idea of detailed eschatology is a big, big mistake. The Bible has much to say about what comes after the church And it's much more than just an instantaneous moment, as he has characterized it. There's much more going on. All right. Back to the video.
1: It's far easier to say I'm very interested in the return of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you how I've got it all figured out here in in page number 49. You see, this will happen and that will happen. You'll run twice around the building. You'll go over there. You'll take the number you first thought of. You'll multiply it by six. And before you know where you are, you're underneath the throne in Jerusalem. When you get there, you will discover there are 144,000 people living under a building. You will come out of it, and so it goes on. And people are saying, what in the world is that about? Exactly what is it about? It's largely an American invention sorry but true exported from england picked up in the states and as with every other good invention parlayed into the most powerful influence that the world has ever seen i got news for you the quantifier as augustine said
0: before we get into the augustine quote uh i need to stop there it's so funny uh the, the, what the greatest force the world has ever seen or something like that. Oh, my word. How how much more overstated can you be here, Mr. Begg? <laughs> oh, that I mean, it's just so silly to me. Um, well, the American invention, as he refers to it here, is dispensationalism. So he is clearly now talking about the system of theology known as dispensationalism. Not the uh, tinfoil hat craziness. He's taking aim at a very respectable biblical framework for understanding God's program. Uh, He is, I mean, he's equating the two, though. So even though he's not talking about um, the speculative thinking, he's equating dispensationalism with speculative thinking. Now, I'm a dispensationalist saying I condemn the crazy speculative thinking. And I see a distinction between the two. He, when he critiques one, is believing he's critiquing the other in this sermon. It seems like he's just uh, conflating those two concepts. And uh, when he does the whole, like, turn to page 49 business, uh, like, you know, multiply by six and you'll be under the throne and there are people in a basement in Jerusalem and all that stuff. That is just um, how you say. Not a fair representation of the system of dispensationalism. That's just not a fair representation, like, at all. <laughs> like, like, just not even close. Now, I do find it interesting that he used 144,000, and he's talking about Jerusalem, which are you know themes in the book of Revelation. I hope he's not saying don't study the book of Revelation. But I kind of wonder if you're sitting there during a sermon like this, are you really going to be motivated to go study the book of Revelation, the book that promises that you'll be blessed if you study it? Yeah, I don't think you will. So maybe if he hasn't already, he needs to reconsider how he presents this kind of stuff. But back to that American invention line, uh, he also said exported from England and then brought to the States. He's talking about You know, again, the system of dispensationalism, John Nelson Darby in England, um, and then others as it evolved over time from the 19th century to today. But, but what does that even mean in regards to his critique? He's critiquing the system. How is it a critique to say it's largely an American invention or it was exported from England? How is that a critique like at all? Um, I just don't understand what he's saying. Like, is justification by faith alone a German invention? Because Martin Luther was the one who really, um, you know, kicked off the Reformation with that at its core—justification by faith alone. Well, it's a it's a German invention. Uh, he mentions Augustine here. He's getting ready to quote him. Uh, is predestination an African invention? Because you know Augustinian theology. He he was in North Africa, so well, it's an African invention. Um. Alistair Begg's hermeneutic when it comes to the covenants of scripture is his hermeneutic an Alexandrian invention this allegorical approach to the biblical covenants. Uh yeah, actually it is. <laughs> yes indeed, it sure is. But uh but, but like what what are these statements, you know? Like is that a dig at justification by faith? Oh, well, that's German. What? Uh <laughs> Predestination. Well, that's so African. Okay, you know. How are these actual critiques? I mean, I'm assuming what he's saying is, hey, America isn't that old, and so dispensationalism isn't that old. Which, again, how is that a shot at anything? Um, that's a whole nother thread that we could talk about sometime. Um, or maybe you as Americans should view yourselves as bad. And so if this is an American invention, then that means it's a bad invention. I don't know. I don't, I just don't even know like what the issue is, but now he's going to quote Augustine. So let's, uh, let's finish it off. I'll go to the end of that clip. I played in its fullness earlier, and then I'll offer my final thoughts.
1: Regarding those who love the coming of the Lord is not those who affirm that it is very close nor is it amongst those who determine that it is far in the distance, but it is to be found in those who, whether it be near or far, await it with all their hearts. And how will you know that you're awaiting it with all your heart? It will stir you concerning the loss of your loved ones and your friends who do not know Christ, and it will say to you, Come on now, Jesus is coming. He doesn't want to find you in this filthy predicament.
0: All righty. So basically he says that um, based on Augustine's articulation, that what's most important in our end times view is not whether we have predictions of it being near, the the coming of Christ being near, or predictions of it being far. Uh, So I think probably what he's thinking is, Uh, whether we have predictions of it being near, like premillennialism, particularly dispensational premillennialism, or predictions of it being far, like postmillennialism, which denies the imminent return of Christ. Um, But it's about whether uh, you are ready each and every day, whether it's near or far, that you're awaiting it by faith. And uh, to that I say, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, It is about awaiting the return of Christ by faith, whether it's near or whether it's far. And that actually, to me, does sound like dispensational premillennialism. It's a great fit for that, I don't know, virtue. I guess I've been using the word virtue a lot, but but this view of what God is doing in the world that says, look, there's going to be an imminent return where Jesus is going to come and take his people from the earth before God unleashes his wrath upon the whole world. We, uh, we realize that could happen in this next moment, or it could happen, I don't know, a thousand years from now. We just don't know. But we realize that it can happen at any moment, and so that actually does drive us to evangelize. Consider the modern world missions movement. What drove that? Many of the famous missions endeavors, the missionaries' names that you know, many of them from the last 100, 200 years were of a dispensational mindset. Hudson Taylor going over to China, uh, dispensational. Yeah, yep, dispensationalist. You uh, think of those missionaries who went down to Ecuador, uh, Jim Elliott in the gang, dispensational. Plymouth Brethren, in fact, uh, Hudson Taylor and uh, Jim Elliott. Plymouth Brethren. So, yeah. Uh, there are all kinds of examples we can point to. And on this podcast, we've done that before. In fact, if you go back to the uh, message we recorded live at the IFCA convention last year about uh, how dispensationalism actually doesn't lead us to check out of the world. We go through some details of dispensationalists in history who have engaged the world, particularly in evangelism. So to to imply here, as Alistair Begg does, that dispensationalists are so caught up in their views of the end times that they ignore evangelism. That's just wrong. Um, If that's what he's saying, it's actually a lie. So um, we need to be really careful about how we characterize different people. And even if there are people within a movement who have some unhealthy, foolish, or even sinful behaviors, like being caught up in speculative stuff or um, not evangelizing, that doesn't... lead to this conclusion that the system is unbiblical or wrong. So, for instance, um, many Reformed people aren't exactly known for being the warmest, most, uh, I don't know, ready-to-embrace-you-in-Christian-fellowship type people. They actually have a reputation for being argumentative and arrogant. So, should we, I don't know, in our sermons, insert... Extended diatribes here on reform people, talking about how uh, you know it, it's they're just arrogant people. Just they're they're really arrogant and uh, cold, full of themselves, and therefore you know we we should turn away from such a thing and focus on holy living, which comes from a different theolo- theology model. That is not a good way to critique someone's theology, but that's essentially what Alistair Begg is doing here. He's saying, look, you've got the tinfoil hat, speculative, uh, live and die by Tucker Carlson people, um, who are dispensational. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to live holy lives, focusing on evangelism. So turn away from dispensationalism, (laughs) just a terrible way to debate and argue and present the other side. So, what what should we do as Christians? Well, we should avoid straw men arguments and bad argumentation like this. And instead, let's focus on the word of God and follow God as he takes us wherever his revelation goes. That should be the goal. All right, well, I'm done now. That's my response to Alistair Begg 20 years late. I still love him so much and will continue to listen to him. He is a very gifted brother that God is using to make a great impact uh, in, in the world, and I'm so thankful for that. I just wish he worded things a little bit differently in this clip. So thanks for listening today. Uh, may God bless us as we engage in discussions on theology, that we'd be charitable, fair, and above all, seeking to honor God rightly from his word. God bless.